So last weekend, uh, my family and I celebrated my son Jared's graduation, and we're uh, very proud of him. And at the ceremony, there was uh, many of you here, uh, some of you here went through that as well, as you uh, saw your loved ones graduate. And one of the things I was struck with was it was different than your typical high school graduation. There was a reality to it that may not have been there before. And I think my 20-year-old daughter said it best when she said, you could tell that the pandemic situation matured them a little bit. They went through something that most classes has not gone through. And that was very, very apparent. You saw that. And I was very impressed with how the students handled that and as they reflected upon what the year was like. But as graduates, they had a question that you saw that they were asking that most of us ask, that all of us ask. And the question is, who are we? Who are we? That's a question that most human beings reflect and wonder about. Who am I? What am I about? What is going on in my life? Who are we? We all wrestle with that. And I know for a fact, Christians wrestle with that. And they wrestle with, what does it mean for me to be a Christian? What does it mean for me to be a Christian? And though today's passage doesn't answer that question exhaustively, I do believe it gives us a foundation It gives us a foundation to build upon. We are in a series called Amaze, where we are going through the Gospel of Mark, chapter by chapter. And in this series, we've seen Jesus do amazing things. And the text we come to today is a text where the whole book of the Gospel of Mark hinges upon. It shifts from this point forward. We saw Jesus do amazing things up to this point. In today's text, there's a shift that takes place, and we are going to see that. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Mark chapter 8, verse 27 and 38, where we're going to see this internal way of life, how to live for eternity. And in this text, we're going to see three eternal realities that anchor who we are. Three eternal realities that anchor who we are. And the first thing we are going to see is an eternal confession, an eternal confession. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. I'm going to read 27 to 30 to start out. It says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others answered one of the prophets. But you, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell, to tell no one about him. The whole book of Mark pivots on this point. The whole book of Mark hinges on this point. Up to this point, we saw Jesus do amazing things. He healed people who were sick. He raised people from the dead. He cast demons out of people who were oppressed. He did amazing things, and the crowd saw it. And like the title of our series, it says the crowd was amazed. There was this, the word amazed pops up from chapter 1 all the way up to this point a lot of times because the people were amazed. They saw Jesus do all these things. The average person on the street thought he was great. 
They saw all the benefits. This guy's amazing. He does things that have never, ever been done before. But one of the things we're going to learn, it's one thing to like all the benefits of Jesus, and it's another thing to consider Him your Lord and to give Him your life. What a great text to celebrate baptism today, what April did, that in baptism we declare that Jesus is our Lord. We enjoy the benefits, but Jesus is our Lord. And so Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And the answers are mixed. You see, the people were impressed with all the things Jesus was doing. They were very, very impressed, but they had no idea who he really was and what he really was about. So he had the interest of the disciples with this first question. So then he goes and he asks the second question. He gets personal. He doesn't leave it general. It's good for us to study theology and look at the Bible and look at things generally and how it all comes together. But Jesus never leaves it like that because good theology always gets personal. Jesus brings it to their hearts. Good theology leads to the individual heart. Jesus doesn't let it stay theory. So he asks the question, what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Forget about all the people, what they say. Who do you say that I am? And I predict in this point of the story, there's a big, long pause. There was some hesitancy. The disciples didn't know who should talk, what we should say. And then Peter answers for the group, and he says, you are the Messiah. In Mark's account, it's really simplified. That's all he says is, you are the Messiah. Matthew writes of the same story, and his account is a lot fuller. Matthew was there when this happened, and when he wrote, he said that Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We see in Matthew a full expression of what was happening there. Why don't we see that in Mark? Well, we can only guess, but I don't know if you know this or not, but the Apostle Peter was Mark's source for the Gospel of Mark. The Apostle Peter helped Mark write this Gospel. And my guess is that Peter, who went through this experience as he's helping Mark, probably didn't want to bring a whole lot of attention to himself. Matthew had no problem with saying, here's what really happened. Let me tell you the full story. Jesus said, I will build this church and upon this confession. You see, some people see that verse and they think that the church of Jesus Christ was built upon Peter. But that's a misinterpretation of that text. What Jesus was saying is based on this confession, Peter, you said, that I am the Messiah, that I am the one who takes away the sins of the world, that I am the one who will return again and set up my kingdom that will last forever and ever. Upon that confession, the church of Jesus Christ will be built. On that confession, we will start and launch this thing that will last all through eternity. So Peter gave that confession. And so that asks a question, that begs a question that we have to ask. What did they mean by Messiah? What did they mean by Messiah? That's where this thing takes a different turn. And this is a, the disciples were, grow, uh, were raised in a Jewish household. 
They were taught about Messiah from the time they were very, very young. They said a Messiah is going to come and is going to change everything. Their idea of Messiah meant this, that he would be a superhuman leader, that he'd be a superhuman leader that would lead in a way that they've never seen before. This Messiah was prophesied about in the Old Testament. Many, many years, many, many stories were passed on generation to generation. A Messiah is going to come and it's going to change everything. They've been waiting for over 2,500 years for Messiah to come. Over 2,500 years of Jewish people would speak generation after generation after generation of Messiah. Messiah would come and overthrow Israel's enemies. Israel would finally be placed where it should. The Messiah would regather all of God's people. The people of Israel that are spread out all over the known world would come back to Jerusalem and be regathered. The Messiah would establish the perfect rule of God. No sickness, no sin, no shame, no disease. The rule of God, no evil. Satan would be vanquished. The rule of God will take place and that is what we will see front and center and that will happen when Christ returns the second time and finally the kingdom of God will last forever. Once Christ returns and sets up this kingdom, it will go on forever. So that, when they said Messiah, those seven things is what they had in mind. And Peter said, you are Messiah. You are it. The whole book of Mark changes. Now he's declared who he is. He knows what he's about. And now we go forward in Mark, looking at this through the lens of Jesus as Messiah, who he said he was supposed to, who he said he was and what he would carry out. All of that is correct. That's what Messiah is like. But how they were applying this needed some correcting. And Jesus goes on to teach them something in order to correct that that blows their minds. He goes on to teach them something that they have a hard time grabbing and understanding because they never thought in a million years Jesus would say what he's about to say. But right after Peter says, you are Messiah, Jesus goes on to teach them that he is a suffering Messiah. He's a Messiah that's going to suffer. And they would have a really hard time with this because Messiah was supposed to come and relieve them of their pain. Their view of Messiah was earthly. He was this political leader, this national leader, this earthly leader that was going to come and deal with their current circumstance. At this time, the Roman Empire ruled over the people of Israel and oppressed them. And there was this tension. They always thought that the Jewish people would someday try to revolt. And so they lived in this tension of a potential war. And now his disciples, when Jesus declared as Messiah, they were thinking, okay, he's going to finally go throw over this Roman Empire. We're going to come in, set up that rule now, and he's going to be king now, and we're going to rule with him. That's what was on their minds. And then Jesus says, no, I'm a suffering Messiah. And they were blown away. They couldn't understand this. And the reason they couldn't understand this is because the disciples were obsessed with human, earthly, temporary thinking. And Jesus had in mind the things of eternity. Jesus had a bigger vision. And it led 
to some eternal confusion. Look at verses 31 and 30 to 33. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Now it gets interesting. Now it gets real. Jesus lays it all out. There's no hiding. He says, plainly, this is what it's about. I'm going to suffer as Messiah. And they did not want to hear that. They wanted a power Messiah, not a suffering Messiah. They wanted a Messiah that was going to change their circumstances today in the here and now. Jesus talked about his resurrection. He said, after three days I will rise. And they missed that. They didn't even see it. The thing that separates Christianity from every other world religion out there, the fact that our Lord died and rose again, was missed in the midst of this because they were so focused on the here and now, which gives us a lesson. One of the biggest hindrances to growing spiritually is we get obsessed with our lives in the here and now, and I'm just as guilty of this. And we miss the greater things that God wants us to know and do. God thinks eternally. And we get so focused in the here and now. When we are focused solely on the here and now like the disciples were, Christianity shrinks. If you have a Christianity that is only about the here and now, and I'm not saying Christianity isn't has some application to the here and now, it does, but when that becomes the only thing it's about, the here and now, and we forget about eternity, that Christianity loses its power. It's not real. If all Christianity is, is to help me have a better life on earth and try to set up a better world here, it does that, but if that's all it does, then we have missed something huge. Jesus was teaching his disciples that he's not just the savior of our earthly troubles, but he's a savior that saves you from the penalty of your sins so that you can live forever with him in eternity. He is a savior that conquers death. He's not just a savior that heals us from the circumstances of the here and now, but he is a savior that we can take to our deathbed knowing that With our faith in Jesus Christ, when we die, we can stand before God the moment we die, and because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we can spend eternity forever and ever with him, not just in heaven, but when he comes back a second time to set up a kingdom that will last forever, we will be a part of that kingdom. That's the gospel. That's Messiah. Messiah is so much bigger than just the here and now. He's so much bigger than just the temporary. As followers of Jesus, we must grow our eternal thinking and not just be focused on the things in front of us that are present. The disciples were so entrenched in their thinking, they missed much of what Jesus taught in this moment because they were obsessed with the here and now in themselves and how they fit into it. Even to the point that Peter pulls Jesus, the Son of God, aside 
after he says you're Messiah, then he pulls him aside and says, no, no, this isn't how this is going to go down. You're going to go be our leader now. Their confusion and their pride caused them to do things they would later regret eternally. Maybe that's why Peter and the accountant Mark didn't jazz it all up because he knew what would happen shortly thereafter. It caused them to hear something very strong and tough from Jesus in verse 33 where Jesus turned and looked at him and said, Get behind me, Satan. Peter was carrying a demonic doctrine. It was clothed in feelings about this reality and the temporary life we have. And it took the things that were meant to be second place blessings that we enjoy in this life, that God wants us to enjoy this life, but he never wants us to take these second place blessings, things like family and friends and jobs and money, all these things that he gives us to keep being second place. When we make those first place, that's called idolatry. That's a sin. And it clouds our vision And we forget about eternity. Peter was not living in biblical reality. He was not living in a soul-saving reality. Jesus' mission and what he was about and his purpose and his kingdom would only come through a suffering Savior. Someone has to pay the price for sin. The disciples weren't thinking about that. They didn't even, they weren't even on that same planet because it's so counter to human reasoning. Who would ever design a method to save and free people that involved disaster, despair, and death? No one but God. Because with God, death is temporary. Death is the doorway to life eternally. And that's why they missed it, because they became so obsessed with the here and now. Human thinking says, a Savior must come now to bring me comfort in this place and change everything in this place. But Jesus was thinking of the eternity of a human soul and his kingdom when he comes back again the second time. Jesus had a much bigger vision, and the disciples were missing it. What about us? Do we miss it at times as well? Is this all there is to life? There's a pastor in Canada named Mark Buchanan who performed a wedding ceremony. And in between the wedding ceremony and the reception, there was time to hang out. And he was hanging out with some members of the bridal party. And this one young man who was in the bridal party came up to him and said, Pastor Mark, do you believe all that religious humbo-jumbo you talked about in that sermon? And he was kind of taken back, and the young man said, no, seriously, do you believe all that that you shared? And Pastor Mark writes this, I looked at this young man, and I said, yes, I do. And he smirked. I asked him what he believes. And he said, you know, I tried your religion for a while, he said, but I found it's just too big of a burden to carry. You know what I figured out, he said? Life justifies living. 
Life itself is the reward, and life itself is the explanation. I don't need some pie-in-the-sky mirage of religion to keep me going. This life has enough pleasure, has enough mystery, has enough adventure, that in it I don't need anything else to account for it. Life justifies living. Pastor Mark said he responded to this young man by saying, that's very good, and I believe you. Today, in the warmth of this breeze, listening to the laughter of those inside, the great smell of that shrimp cooking that we're about to eat, looking at the blueness of the sky, yes, today I believe you. That's a superb philosophy. Life justifies living. Life is its own reward. But there's a problem with that. Because right now I'm thinking about a person I met in February, he said, named Richard. Richard was 44 and looked 60. He'd been living on the street since he was 12 years old, and he was a junkie, and now he was dying of AIDS. Last time I saw Richard was on a gray, rainy winter day where I bought him a bus ticket and put him on the bus. He was going to his mom's home in Calgary. He hadn't spoken to her in over 15 years, but he was hoping to go home to die. Almost incoherent, Richard kept sputtering, I wish I had never been born. My whole life had been a mistake. My whole life has been misery. And Pastor Mark said, now I'm thinking about Richard. How does that philosophy work for him? He said, I'm also thinking about Ernie. Ernie was a man on the rise. He was in his 20s. He was already vice president of a thriving national business. He was tough-minded, hard-driving, very skilled, hugely ambitious, He was a superb athlete, good at any sport. He and his wife were unable to have children on their own, so they adopted four kids, three from Africa and one from Mexico. On the day the fourth adoption became final, Ernie got the results back from some medical tests that he had undergone due to some dizziness, blurred eyesight, and tingling in his hands. And the test came back with stunning news that Ernie had multiple sclerosis. Back to this young man he was talking to at this wedding. He said, I hear what you're saying about your philosophy, and, but I'm thinking about Richard, and I'm thinking about Ernie, and I have a question about your philosophy. Exactly how do I explain to them that life is its own reward and that life justifies living? The young philosophy student had no response. He said, I'll have to think of so- about that and get back to you. I gave him my address and asked him to write me when he came up with something, and I never heard from him. And you know why? Because life does not justify living. This life in the here and now is not the reward. It doesn't justify or define living. What defines living is eternity. What makes this life make sense is the vision of eternity and connecting the full story of God, knowing all that God is doing. That's the only way the here and now makes sense. If we're going to follow Jesus, we must change our thinking to think eternally. We must embrace God's ways. His ways are higher than our feelings in the moment and the here and now. We must embrace a suffering Messiah that will one day return as king and set up his kingdom forever. And we as his church, if we persevere to the end and hang on to that vision, will be with him in that place. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Jesus goes on to tell us 
about an eternal connection. Look at verses 34 to 38. It says, Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to him, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for their life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, which is a title for Messiah, will also be ashamed of them when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Embracing a suffering Messiah means we follow him to the cross. The cross is for all those who follow Jesus Christ. Jesus led the procession. He led the cross. He took the cross. Only he could bear the full brunt of it. But then he calls us as his followers to walk behind him in his footsteps. There are crosses we must carry as Christians. There are crosses we must carry as Jesus followers. And what are these crosses? Many people think a cross that we carry are simply just hardships and trials. The crazy boss the unfair teacher, that person who keeps popping up on my Facebook thread. But they are not our crosses. Also things like illness and sickness and financial struggles, those are not crosses as well. A cross comes from enduring a trial because of embracing the narrow way of Jesus. Crosses come by enduring trials for embracing Jesus' way, the truth, the life. As a cross comes when you go through trials, uh, crosses come when you go through trials for living out Christian ethics, for living out Christian ways relationally, morally, sexually, and verbally, at work, at home, in your extended family. When you suffer because you are obeying Jesus Christ, that is a cross. When you suffer because you're carrying out your sexual ethics the way God says in his word and people look at you like you're nuts, that is a cross. It's suffering for the sake of Jesus. It comes from embracing weakness instead of embracing power. It comes when you show the love of Christ to someone in such a way that it costs you something to show them that Jesus loves them, that's a cross. Difficult times alone are not crosses. Difficult times because you follow Jesus, that's a cross. And they are proportionate to our devotion to him. Jesus went on to say something very difficult in verse 35. He said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Jesus said, the way to get an eternal connection is to lose your life with him. Jesus is not necessarily talking about becoming a martyr and losing your life physically, though that happens to some. But that's not what he's saying when he says lose your life. If that was the case, the only one who could go to heaven were martyrs. He's talking about something deeper, something I would say is even harder. He's talking about living in that place where your desires and your ambitions and your goals and your dreams are all submitted to Jesus Christ. 
Those things that you pictured the way your life was supposed to go and then it doesn't go like that, that you take that all and you submit it and give it to him. It's placing Jesus on the throne of your heart and everything else is in second place. All those second place blessings stay second place and he becomes first place in your throne of your heart. That's what it means to lose your life. Nothing could be more countercultural in the age we live in than that. Because in this age, losing our lives is like insanity. We boost our lives. We protect our lives. Nothing is more opposed to the world's way of thinking that the Scripture lays out than that. Losing your life, nothing could be more countercultural than where we live than that truth. But don't miss this. Not only is this opposed to the current culture we live in, nothing could be more life-giving. Nothing could be more life-giving. Do you want to live a life that's satisfied? Do you want to live a life that's at peace? Do you want to live a life full of joy? Do you want to live a life where you sense God's love and pleasure and you're able to give that to others, nothing can do that than when you lose your life and Jesus is on the throne of your life, you become the way he intended you to live. When you become how he designed you, he is the creator. And when you come before him and you yield to him and you give him your life and he sits on the throne of your heart and is now the king and lord and rules over all that and you live life that way now you're living like god intended you to live i was cutting my grass yesterday it's like if i took a lawnmower and i used that to blow snow out of my driveway it wouldn't work too well so many human beings in this day and age are living in a way they were never intended to live and it looks really really good it looks like they have all the comfort and glitz and glam, but it doesn't give life. When you lose your life, you find it. When you lose your life, you're saved. Jesus said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose your soul? See, he's thinking eternity. He's thinking eternity. Don't, why would you lose your soul in the here and now? When we get to heaven, we're going to look at Jesus and we're going to say, Jesus, I knew you were good, but I never thought you were this good. I knew you were loving. I never thought you were this loving. I knew you were powerful. I never thought you were this powerful. And if I knew that back then when I was living on earth, I would have lived a totally different way. Let's live that now. We must be careful as Christians and Jesus followers not to make following Jesus all about the here and now when we forget eternity. We domesticate Christianity when we make it all about the here and now. When it's all about my comfort in 2021, when it's all about giving me comfort emotionally, and those are not bad things in and of themselves, but when that's all it is, the vision needs to be expanded because following Jesus is an eternal endeavor. We must think of eternity, heaven, yes, but even bigger than that, when he returns to earth and sets up a kingdom where there's no more evil, no more sin, no more suffering, no more shame, and we rule with him. That is what's coming. We can't forget that. 
So I invite you to consider two things. First of all, I invite you to deny yourself. Lose your life by keeping Jesus on the throne of your heart. And maybe you've never, ever done that before. And I encourage you, if you've never done that before, to do that. Invite Jesus into your life. Say, I want you to be in first place. I want to live for you for the rest of my days on earth that I could be with you for all of eternity. I want you to be sitting on the throne of my heart. And let me tell you something, you're not going to do that perfectly. You're going to do that grossly imperfectly just like I am. But when Jesus is on the throne of our heart and we take him off and replace him with something else, you know what he does? He convicts us and sharpens us and lets us see it so that we can ask forgiveness and repent and move forward. See, he comes in and helps us keep him on the throne of our hearts. Jesus relentlessly undermines all that is not God to make room for the God who has redeemed our hearts. That's who he is. It's a great thing. The second thing I'm going to encourage you to do is live for eternity. Have you given much thought to what happens when you die? Have you given much thought to what's going to happen when this life is over? It's worth taking time to consider that. It's freeing and life-changing when you realize who God is, that he sent his son Jesus so that we can face death, not in fear, but at peace, knowing that we're going to be with him forever. There's only one way that leads to greater life when this life is over, and that's Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would expand the eyes of our heart to have a vision of eternity. And Father, in those areas of our lives where we become so blinded by the here and now that it becomes the sole way of thinking, the sole way that defines our Christianity, will you convict us of that? Would you remind us of your eternal purposes for us and will you help us as we move forward to live in such a way where you are ruling on the throne of our lives by grace and mercy. We thank you for who you are, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.